0: Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams.
1: My name is Andrew Starnes. I'm a fourth year MD MPH student at the University of Oklahoma, rising to the PGY1 at Wake Forest. And we are glad to have Dr. Nelson here today, who is the chair at Rutgers. would you uh, introduce yourself for us, Dr. Nelson, tell us a little bit about what your background is?
0: Sure. Thanks. And thanks for, uh, for having me and for hosting the podcast. Um, so yeah, I'm Lewis Nelson. I'm the chair of emergency medicine at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, which is the, the Rutgers that's in Newark. There's another Rutgers that's in New Brunswick, where the main university campus is. Um, and they are both go by the name of Rutgers, so people often confuse the two. Um, before I took my chair position about two years ago, I was the... Um, Program Director for Medical Toxicology a Fellowship at NYU, which I had done for about two decades or so. And I was also Vice Chair for Academic Affairs at NYU. Um, I determined you know, at that point that it was time to take a new position after 20 some odd years. Uh, and as you start looking, you realize that you know, the options are fleeting, and you have to make some pretty, pretty quick decisions. And I think I made a great decision taking on the new role I have, which again, I've been at it for about two years. And I'll tell you, every day is a learning experience, and that's the best part about making career moves and, and uh, you know just keeping yourself uh, keeping yourself alive and, 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 and you know a lot of vitality. Yeah.
1: Uh, well, we kind of talked earlier about um, you've done a lot of career advising and obviously have a lot of experience yourself in uh, emergency medicine and in administration now. Uh, how did you really become a mentor to so many, and and how did you sort of cultivate that interest in yourself? So,
0: you know, after I finished my residency, I was sure I wanted to stay in academic medicine. And even then, which was, you know, 25 years ago, it was very clear that the future really required you to develop some sort of presence, some sort of niche that you would be able to sort of make a name for yourself in, in some way. And it just so happened that I had rotated through the Poison Center in New York, and I really enjoy toxicology, which not everybody enjoys, and other people are gonna find different areas they like. That may be fellowship-based, maybe, fellowship maybe degree-based, maybe just something they pick up and run with on their own. Uh, but, but developing that sort of niche is very important, so that's really was my foray into medical toxicology, and I was fortunate enough to have a chair, the kind of chair I'd like to be, who helps faculty develop in their own areas of interest. So through that, uh, effort. I became, you know, the fellowship director, and I went on and obviously worked, was able to recruit fellows over the years. And every fellow is different, and every faculty member that you recruit is different. Every medical student, every person is different. And so I was able to work with the with the fellows that I had and help them nurture their interests. And some of them have gone on to be expert clinicians in medical toxicology, run poison centers, do grant funded research, work for the federal government. So all sorts of walks of life that. that that the fellows have done it, and each one does require a bit of a personalized plan. And it's really one of the most exciting parts about being a program director, whether it's a residency program director or fellowship program director or, frankly, to be a chair where you really get to work
1: with junior faculty and help them develop. Um, So, in, in general, I'd say what advice do you have for medical students and residents looking to ultimately have a career? And in emergency medicine administration, specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think of myself as an administrator, because, you know, you can come to
0: administration as well through multiple backgrounds. And, you know, the three sort of classic ways that people do this, is are either through sort of the academic path, the clinical operations path, or the research path. You know, I obviously approach it through the, through the academic path, being somebody who is very interested in, you know, scholarship and research and education. Um, you need to pick which which one you like to do. Um, you know, clinical operations is probably the most recently classic way of doing it, where you know you become a medical director and maybe a vice chair for clinical operations, and you step forward and you go up that pathway, and that's great, and that's a that's something that is innate to some people, and other people it's a learn it's a learned skill. But you do have to pick an area that you like to do. And for those that are interested in research, it's another fine way to, to get involved with with administrative efforts, but but you have to pick some way to get to the administrative world. Now, once you're there, you realize most of us come up through one of those three paths or another path, but we don't come up through all three. So the fun part about getting into the administrative world is you have a lot of learning to do. You know, So after 25 years of doing the same thing, Groundhog Day, so to speak, and good Groundhog Day, I mean, no complaints, uh, boy, it's a whole new world of, of opportunities out there and, and things you have to learn and do. and. Things you never really thought much about, you were always things that other people did. And all of a sudden, they become mine to to do, or at least to, to delegate, and to be responsible for. So really, the idea of becoming an administrator is being excellent in something, being recognized for something, and then parlaying that into a role. Whether it's, again, as a vice chair, or chair, or program director, some sort of administrative role. But I wouldn't use administrative as a dirty word. I mean, I know a lot of people do think of it that way. Because you really have the opportunity to make a difference in, in you know, people and places and institutions and patients and, and all sorts of things. So, so in reality, it's it's really something to strive for, and it's a, it's a great endpoint for people that are interested in that.
1: And, you know, for someone that's let's say early in their career and has varied interests in in research and in academics and in um, uh, their clinical work, what advice would you have for them as they're sort of trying to balance? Uh, varied interests with um, focused goals. Their interest is a good thing. I mean, that that pretty much defines emergency
0: medicine, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know what they say, you know, jack of all trades, that sort of thing. And and there's nothing wrong with that, and it actually serves us well, because the the advice I've given my fellows over the years is to find not one, but two or three areas that you enjoy, and make them your own. Uh, And I've often said there should be one or two that are clinical, one or two that are non-clinical. And non-clinical could be things like, you know, simulation, or it could be research, or it could be education. And then there should be one or two that are clinically become an expert in something. You know, it could be pulmonary embolism, it could be opioids, it could be, you know, calcium channel blockers. I'm obviously focused on toxicology, but it could be it could be anything. And and sort of that gets you a foot in the door of committees and panels and and, and you know other things within an institution and within an organization and it allows you to slowly develop credibility. No, nobody says you're going to go from you know being a medical student to being a chair in in a, in a year. It's a it's a long process and it's and it's a fun process. And again, chair is not necessarily the end point. Whatever the end point might be um, you have to start somewhere. So if you pick an area that you like or two, and then you find the overlap between them, and you really develop a little bit of a niche. I mean, the more niche-ish you could be, the better off you probably will be in the long run. And then combine it with your non-clinical areas. You know, if you like policy, get involved with, with health policy in your in your region, your town, your institution. And if you, if you could get into federal government level policy making. Some people have backgrounds that allow them to do that. Th- these are the areas where you really start to combine and see synergies between the things that you like to do. Um, the networking opportunities that come along with that, you know, they just, they're just create terrific uh, fodder for you to for you to
1: succeed. Gotcha. Uh, well, you, you sort of hinted at, um, you talked about the Tox Fellowship um, training and the opioid crisis. You're one of several other chairs with dual board certification in toxicology. Uh, how do you think that this fellowship has really furthered your career and ultimately your position as a chair? And then also, how has your focus on the opioid crisis changed how you practice or manage? The you know the ability to get develop a
0: niche is something that is you know either either something you take on, on your own and, and, and develop a niche, or you sort of get a turnkey you know uh, uh, sort of a ability to do that by doing a fellowship or doing a degree. So any anything that, that gives you the opportunity to learn something new or participate in some other activity will be a way to get your again your foot in the door of developing one of those one of those areas of interest or expertise that I that I alluded to earlier. Um, fellowships are again, they they really make that happen for you. And it doesn't matter almost what fellowship you do as long as you enjoy Doing that kind of work, whether it's PZM or or ultrasound or medical toxicology, all of them give you a, sort of an instantaneous uh, niche and, and give you a certain amount of credibility. Within that, believe it or not, you need to develop an area of of interest in, in, in a niche and some credibility. Even though it sounds like toxicology or PEM or something is in and of itself a niche, it's not. I mean, you really need to do something within that. But you have to start somewhere. Now, there's no doubt that people do not have to do fellowships to be successful. Uh, if you took the two years that you spent doing a fellowship and worked on something on your own, developing a research project or getting involved with health policy, and you just did that for two years, you probably would wind up in about the same place. It's just a lot more directed and a lot more compact to do it as part of a training program. Again, it could be a master's program and something like that, or it could be a certificate program, but something that gives you that ability to, to focus on an area of interest. So for me, I really didn't get involved with the opioid epidemic until probably about 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, and like many of us, I, I did a lot of things before that. Uh, I was interested in some cardiotoxic, drugs. I did a bit of, you know, work on some of the educational efforts that we all get involved with. And when I realized that the opiate epidemic was really a big deal and I got involved with it, it took on a life of its own. And and like I've already suggested, getting involved with some specific area, the smaller the area, the better off you are, the easier it is to develop um, a a career path. So it has, you know, the opiate epidemic has really impacted my career. You know, it's gotten me involved with things at at multiple levels, uh, including professional organizations and conferences, and I've done some work with the federal government, and you work with uh, regulators in your state helping, for example, for me to develop the prescription drug monitoring program and put together some guidelines. There's a lot of areas, and, you know, I've been able to use that to impact the institutions that I've worked with, developing some of the harm reduction strategies that we like to think about, like naloxone distribution programs and, and warm handoffs to, the, to medication-assisted therapy. So if you do it that way and you make you find an area that you really are passionate about and something you enjoy, it does infiltrate into all aspects of, of your career.
1: Great. So uh, you have experience working with multiple groups and, and doing a lot of different things, and I'm, I'm sure you've worked with a lot of people, and you've hired quite a few people. Uh, what do you look for uh, in a new faculty hire? I think there are two sort of faculty, and we're talking about
0: academic programs. You know, Obviously, in a, in a clinical program, things are, are very different. You're mm-hmm. looking for people who are IRVUs, good patients run over, have, you know, they're nice to patients. Not that we don't look for those things, but, but that's not necessarily driving force for what, what we look for in an academic program. Uh, we, we typically, I mean, many programs split their faculty into sort of the clinical workforce and the academic workforce. And if you have a residence program, that's a little bit done for you by the concept of core faculty. Uh, some programs, and in some sort of way I'd like it to be this way, is to have an all core faculty, everybody who's engaged with education and research and and training and scholarship. Uh, It's not probably uh, for most places a reasonable expectation. You're going to still need people who really come in and do a bunch of clinical time to alleviate some of the clinical expectations for the faculty who want to be academically productive. So in the clinical half of the faculty. I think we really look for good clinicians, people who like to work with residents, people who like to work with patients, people who enjoy their job, like to come to work. You know, all the same things you probably would look for if you were in a quote unquote community hospital job. On the academic half, I will say though that to me, passion and interest are very important. And I think that probably all academic chairs would say that because you don't want you don't want to use a faculty line, a precious faculty line to hire somebody who's really just there to buy time, right? Somebody who's, who's there to sort of take a quote unquote easy job where they don't have to work as many clinical hours and they get to work with residents. You want somebody who's gonna get those benefits but in return they can give you two or three times the amount of effort that they would have to do if they work clinically for that same period. So it, depending on what you're looking for, if I was looking for some people that did ultrasound, I'd be looking for your training, your your certification, your your um, publications, the the teaching that you've done, you know, all all those sorts of things. It's it's not hard to imagine what it is that makes somebody credible. Now, realize that most people looking for jobs are pretty junior, but you really have to assess people for what you think their potential is, you know, where they come from, what they've done, how they interview. it's, it's not easy, and you know, to some extent, it's it's a bit of a crapshoot, to be honest, because you never really know what something's going to be like in a 20-minute or an hour-long interview. You do some due diligence, you speak to the program director or their chairs from other departments, um, but when they get there, you hope that they're going to produce the way they said they would. But I think to have a good working faculty that collaborates and, and enjoys coming to work and working together, you need to really hire the right people, and I, I would use that word passion over and over again because when you hire a faculty member who has an area of interest, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be building widgets and playing tiddlywinks, you know, I don't care I don't care what it is, if they're passionate about it, and the more focused it is and the more directed it is, the more likely they are to be successful. Those are the people that I really would love
1: to hire as faculty. I think that leads me to a sort of follow-up would be how do you go about identifying that enduring passion uh, and for those uh, residents that are about to embark on looking for that first hire, how do they effectively and, uh, and genuinely convey uh, that if they have
0: it? Well, you, you know, uh, actions speak louder than words. Um, so saying I want to be an expert in X, Y, or Z is a little different than showing me you've made a few steps towards that. Nobody expects a resident to come out of residency with an R01 or with the new England journal of medicine front page a manuscript. But we do expect them to have sat on a committee, written a case report, given a lecture, met with a few key faculty members, joined a committee in a national organization. These are all open to people. It doesn't take a lot, honestly. Remember, the bar is pretty low because most residents don't do things like that, so you you don't have to do a lot to show an interest. Um, Nobody really expects greatness walking out. We expect Potential that we could recognize, fodder that we can work with to help you develop. I mean, that's a big part of being an academic program. You know, we have we have mentorship programs in place. We have um, you know the ability to help people get advanced training, whether it's through again professional organizations or degree-bearing programs. And we want you to be successful, right? That's our that's our sort of mark of academic excellence and success that so we have to show to our leadership, our deans and our CEOs and, and things like that. So we need to show success. So we want people to be successful, despite what people may think. It's not only about how many shifts you're gonna do. I mean, it's really about you, you being, a, a, you know, a marker of success of the department. So it's really, there's no magic sauce for what, what su- a successful candidate looks like. But you sort of know it when you see it, and I think that's what we're really looking for when we when we do our you know our searches and our interviews.
1: Yeah, well, mentioning uh, the magic sauce for success, uh, there are different ideas about the best way to be successful. And some people um, sort of advocate move around, see different things, and do different things. And others uh, would advocate really establish yourself in an area, um, even geographically. And you've really done that, um, so. How do you think it's benefited you to stay in the same relative ge- geographic location for your training and for your career?
0: I don't think anybody's going to really look much at geography. I don't think that it helps or hurts to move around a lot because those are not necessarily decisions that we make on our own, right? There's family reasons and you know and other reasons that people move. Obviously, if you change jobs every year for ten years, people may start asking what's going on. But you know, moving now and again for various reasons, is okay. And I think that's expected and easily explainable. I'm not even sure it has to be explained, to be honest. What I do think is more important is changing jobs every couple of years years, and what every couple of years means could be five, ten, some number, and what I mean by changing jobs, it doesn't mean you have to pick up and move across the state to take a different job, it could mean it could be job titles within your department, you know, so I work in, in an area in New York City and Northern New Jersey where there are literally 50 or 75 academic medical centers, right, but you work in Oklahoma where there's probably one or two. So for you to change jobs means picking up your house and your family and everything else and moving to some other place. For me, I, I changed jobs, I didn't move. You know, and, that, and so I have a big advantage in that way. So nobody's gonna really look at you and say, well, how come you didn't change jobs several times before you got here? But what I would like to see in, in people is that they do broaden themselves by changing job descriptions. So, you know, you start out as a general faculty member, you pick up an area of interest, maybe you become an APD, or you become an assistant medical director, or whatever career path you choose, and you add on to that by picking up the chairman of a committee in the department, maybe moving on into some committee within the institution, Uh, maybe you get a real um, uh, title in, in the medical school or the medical center or the department, um, and you keep, you keep parlaying that into various things. You pick up a committee on a national organization. you do all of these things, and you continue to grow yourself. I think that stagnation doesn't represent you very well. I think you need to show that you're constantly providing some vitality earlier because I think that, that vitalness is very important. We have to show that you you maintain that passion. You haven't just kind of sat back on your laurels and expect people to recognize
1: how wonderful you are. Well, we've uh, asked you a lot about, uh, sort of in hindsight, we think about things drawing on the experience that you have um, accumulated, what would you say are the biggest changes that you see coming for emergency medicine and medicine in general in the future? Well, good and bad,
0: obviously, and we don't really know how the future is going to play out, but I think personally that one of the things that's that's quite damaging to us is sort of mergers and acquisitions. and of, of healthcare into healthcare systems, uh, which really reduces autonomy and 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 variability, which is a good thing to some extent because obviously the more consistent and automated things are, the more likely they are to be consistent and safe. But that's not what we signed up for as physicians. You know, we signed up to be able to practice autonomously. And one of the problems with the way medicine is, whether it's at a governmental regulatory level or an institutional financial level, uh, is that we want to be able to make decisions. We want to be able to do what we think is right at the time for the patient or for our careers. And as health systems form, we become less and less able to do those things. It's sort of almost the assembly line worker Model And it's not just emergency medicine by any means, I mean, this is something that we're seeing across all specialties. Whether it's the hospitalist model that you see for internal medicine, many of the classically outpatient services, you know, the orthopedists and things, they're forming these same sort of groups and um, hiring within and becoming hospital employees. Not necessarily, excuse me, not necessarily a bad thing, but a change. And we don't know how it's going to play out, but certainly for most of us, we think about wellness and, and burnout. A lot of that is related to the sense of autonomy and purpose that we have. I mean, most of us go into this with the right idea of helping people and being able to do what we think is right. And it doesn't take long before we realize that we're, we're facing the man, you know, and, and the man isn't necessarily in favor of the things that we want to do. And that sort of provides a sense of helplessness which does drive a lot of the dissatisfaction that many people have. Remember, I've been doing this for 25 years, so I've lived through a lot of these changes. You guys are entering for right now, so the changes haven't occurred yet to you, this is when you're, you're onboarding, but you're going to be in this 25 years from now and you still want to be able to enjoy what you're doing. Doing medicine, doing emergency medicine, is still one of the best career choices in the world. You can look at yourself in the mirror and feel good about what you do every day. There's no question about that but you still have to enjoy what you're doing. You still have to want to get out of bed and go do it. You have to maintain that passion. That's one of the nice parts about academic medicine is it gives you a little bit of a relief valve from the sort of monotony and relentlessness of a lot of the clinical work that we do, which is why so many people enjoy, and I think longevity in academic medicine is a bit longer than it is in in non-academic medicine. You know, but there are good, there are great things that are happening in medicine too. I mean, you know, I think academic emergency medicine is, is... is growing incredibly well in places it hasn't really thrived before, in some of the larger academic centers. You know, year every year, another another big academic medical center, medical school, develops a department of emergency medicine and recognizes the value of what we do. You know, as a specialty, we have infiltrated into all parts of the hospital. We've picked up you know, services like observation medicine and, and all, all sorts of things that really make us, um, you know, we, they make, it makes us sort of un, you know, tightly connected to the institution uh, that they just really can't work without us. And that's exactly what we want to be. We need to be that sort of service where, you know, we don't, we're, we're indispensable, right? They can't just replace us. Then nobody really could do our job. You know, if you think back 25, 30, 40 years ago, who did emergency medicine? It was people who couldn't do anything else. And we've developed a specialty where you have to do a residency, you have to be certified, you have to show your skills, and you have to maintain your skills in order to call yourself an emergency physician, and certainly to call yourself a board-certified emergency physician, and to keep that credibility. You can't just throw somebody in the ED anymore and expect them to be able to do our job. So we, we really have become indispensable and inextricably linked to the, to the fabric of a, of a medical center.
1: I would say that people like yourself are certainly indispensable to um, young physicians, uh, such as myself, and we really appreciate you uh, sharing your insight and your perspective and your time with us. And uh, I just uh, wanna say thank you. You're welcome.